I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. While you're making your way to Romans chapter 1, I would like to begin by putting an image in your mind. I want you to think very seriously about this image. Before I do that, the title of the message is A Powerful Preamble, Paul's Unwavering Goal. Now, here's the image I want to put in your mind. I want you to imagine a group of children at a pinata party. Are you with me? I want you to imagine a group of children at a pinata party. Now, I have seen small children, three, four, and five-year-olds, who, when I walk up to them and I say, how are you, young man? Or how are you, little girl? They won't even look at me. They turn their head one way, they turn their head the other way, and much to the chagrin of their parents, I am totally ignored. Have you ever been there? When a, a child won't even acknowledge you. But you give that same child a Louisville slugger. And you open the door and send them into the room where the pinata is hanging. That child, that shy child goes from an introverted, shy child to Babe Ruth on steroids. You know exactly what I'm talking about. One minute they won't talk to you. The next thing, they're swinging madly at this pinata. And then once the, the brave soul that hits the pinata, it breaks open and the candy bursts forth. And all these shy children from a moment ago rush in a crazy manner to pick up all this candy. And I mean, I've seen kids stuffing it in their pockets. I've seen boys stick it down their shirt. They put it in their backpack. They run away. They hide. I mean, these kids go crazy at the sight of candy. That's the image I want to have you place into your mind and into your heart as we approach Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. This morning, our task is to continue to dig deeply into the book of Romans. And I, I hope you have discovered by this point that Paul's letter to the Romans is no mere book. As I mentioned several weeks ago, this book may be the most important letter ever penned. It may indeed be the most important piece of literature in the history of the world. I'd like you to see the book before you as a treasure chest. I want you to see it as a treasure chest, and I want you to approach the book of Romans with that image in mind. Now, you have two images now. You have this group of crazy children swinging Louisville sluggers at the pinata, and then you have the image of a treasure chest. And I was unable to locate a treasure chest, but I can tell you this. If I placed a treasure chest here on the platform... And someone were to donate a, 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 a bunch of money and gold and silver and jewelry. If we placed it in the treasure chest and I said that after the service, all the children would be welcome to come up and grab some treasure from the treasure chest, you know exactly what would happen. There wouldn't be one shy child in the place. And so I want us to approach the book of Romans, like we would a treasure chest, eagerly, 
expectantly, with exuberance, with excitement. And isn't it strange that as we talk about all these different ways of approaching the treasure chest, we are still three weeks into the series, we're still in the preamble. I won't ask how many of you, the last time you read Paul's letter to the Romans, how many of you actually skipped the preamble? And the reason we don't skip the introduction or the preamble or the prologue in any of the books is that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for doctrine. The Word of God is sufficient And so we come to this section of Scripture filled with excitement, even though it is the prologue. And we're going to find that when we come to the end of this section today, we're still not done. And Lord willing, we'll finish the prologue next week. Now, I want to have you stand with me as we read this section of Scripture together. We're going to read verses 1 to 7 once again and pay careful attention to verse 5 because that will be the focus of our concentration today. This is the Word of God. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for all that we're learning in this study. Lord, we anticipate many, many months of study in this book. And I I pray that you would would do a a work of grace in individual hearts and individual families and groups of people. God, I pray that you would turn our attention today to your word so that we would see the power of this gospel that we're so concerned to learn about. Lord, help us to see what is on the heart of the Apostle Paul, the man who penned this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we leave this place filled with joy, filled with encouragement, that we would see that our aim is is the glory of God. Lord, may we be changed eternally, all for your sake. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May be seated. Let me do once again, at the risk of repeating myself, a, a brief review of the the territory that we have covered. We began in verse 1 by looking at Paul's unique role. There are three things in the first verse of Romans chapter 1 that describe that unique role. We see that Paul is called a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is also called to be an apostle. And finally, he is set apart for the gospel of God. This is Paul's unique role. And then last week, we we looked at Paul's unyielding gospel, and we learned 
the importance, the supreme importance of getting the gospel right. My friends, we have got to get the gospel right. You go to a bookstore, you go to Christian bookstores, you watch Christian television, and you will see that many, many people in our generation are not getting the gospel right. Last week, I shared some of the ways that we're not getting the gospel right. I reminded you that this is not a gospel of works. We also learned that this is not a gospel of positive thinking. We continue to show that this is not a prosperity gospel. And I shared with you the forthcoming book by Costi Hinn, the nephew of the prosperity gospel quote-unquote, gospel preacher, Benny Hinn. Costi Hinn has since turned away from the prosperity gospel, but he once embraced, and in this book he says this, quote, the prosperity gospel is doing damage to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an evil that poses as blessing, but is truly a curse. It appears to be a loving extension of God's goodness, but is arguably the most hateful and abusive kind of false teaching plaguing the church today, end quote. I would commend that book to your attention as it releases in a month or two. And we learned three very important things about Paul's unyielding gospel in verses 1 and 2. We learned, and we'll continue to uncover this today, that this gospel was promised by God. This is the gospel that was promised in eternity past, and it was fulfilled in real time and real space. The gospel is something that we can get our hands on. We also learned that It was presented by the prophets. All throughout redemptive history, we see the prophets looking forward to the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, we saw that the gospel pointed to God's Son. You want to know who is the center of the gospel? It is none other than the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you'd back out of that for for a moment with me, we've seen, number one, Paul's unique role. We've seen, number two, his unyielding gospel. Today, in verse five, I want you to see Paul's unwavering goal. And you all know what it means to have a goal. A goal is something that you strive for. A goal is something you seek to attain. A goal is something important to us. And as we consider this unwavering goal, I want you to keep in mind that everything in Paul's argument is linked back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Everything that we are going to look at is linked intimately to the gospel of God. You can see the truth point on the screen. I want to do something a little bit different and give you the truth point in advance, and then we'll unpack it together. The truth point is simply this, that Paul's unwavering goal is for the gospel of God to produce life transformation among all the nations for God's glory. If I told you how many times I typed that sentence in my computer and I left out the word all, It would absolutely horrify you. I got lazy. I got sloppy. God's gospel seeks to produce life life transformation, not only among the nations, 
but among, help me, all the nations. Not, not one is excluded, all for God's glory. So I want to unpack the truth point line by line. Let me give you a few points in advance. We want to see now that Paul has an aim. Number one is he has an aim. Number two, he has an audience. And the number three, he has a very important aspiration. Let's begin with Paul's aim. Paul's aim is very simply put in that it is life transformation. Life transformation. Look at verse 5. Paul says, through whom, speaking of Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's aim here is life transformation. And we need to continue to explore, I believe, some misconceptions of the gospel. As I've already indicated, we have learned that the gospel is not a gospel of works. It is not a gospel of positive thinking. And it is certainly, by the way, I did not get one email about this one. I was so happy about that. It is certainly not the gospel of Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen. I just had to say it again because this is not the gospel of these kinds of folks. Now, another misconception that we did not explore last week is that the gospel, some of you will be familiar with this, the gospel is not merely a ticket to get people out of hell and into heaven, but does not produce a life that is holy or transformed. People who embrace this notion of the gospel teach and preach that obedience and submission and holiness are optional. Have you heard this? It's you come to saving faith and holiness is optional. It is it is it should be sought after, but it is optional. Life transformation should be sought after, but it is optional. Submission to God should be sought after, but it is optional. This is what has been called through the last several years as the non-lordship gospel. The non-lordship gospel. James Boyce, before he went to be with the Lord, I believe in 1991, he describes this defective theology. He describes this non-lordship gospel. By the way, I might add, in I'm guessing 150, 160 people here today, some of you were raised in a tradition where you were taught this non-lordship gospel. This is not a fringe event. This is not something that is the minority report in the evangelical church. This is, this is something that has historically been taught widely in so-called evangelical circles. But here's what James Boyce says about non-lordship theology. He says, this theology separates faith from discipleship and grace from obedience. He goes on to say it teaches that Jesus can be received as one savior without being received as Lord. That is to say what Boyce refers to here is you can trust Jesus, you can take him as your savior, but he does not necessarily need to be your Lord. Let me give some examples of this non-lordship view. 
The first example comes from a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now you understand why I say this is not a fringe movement. This is something that, wow, like most of my professors that I had at Multnomah University were graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary. Isn't that interesting? But this particular author, Zane Hodges, says this. He says that conversion to... Conversion to Jesus Christ requires no spiritual commitment whatsoever. Please, no one say amen. He says it requires no spiritual commitment whatsoever. Another professor from Dallas Theological Seminary said this, and I quote from his book, a very, very popular book entitled Balancing the Christian Life. He said, there need be no turning from sin. Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. Can you imagine if your pastor were to, that's me, were to preach a message that says, you need to come to Christ, but you don't need to turn from sin? There would be one response. I'm looking at the chairman of the board, and the chairman of the board's thinking, you'd be gone, buddy, right? That's exactly what would happen. But this writer says that there need be no turning from sin, no resulting change in lifestyle, no commitment, not even a willingness to yield to Christ's lordship. End quote. There are two classes of so-called Christians in this non-lordship framework. And some of you have heard me refer to this before. There are the carnal Christians and there are the spiritual Christians. There is a, a vastly popular author who's written literally dozens of books and you're all familiar with him. And I pulled a book off my shelf not too long ago. And I saw this illustrated where you have the carnal Christian and then you have true disciples of Jesus Christ. May I just say that there's only one kind of follower of Jesus and that person is called a disciple. You are either a disciple or you are not. And so simply put, all these views boil down to this. It says you can have justification you can have right standing with God without sanctification. Here's what the non-lordship authors say and the non-lordship theologians and pastors say. They say that anyone who says that commitment is required, anyone who says that repentance is required to be a Christian, that is a false add-on to the gospel and nothing could be further from the truth. Paul the Apostle knows better. He understands that the gospel of God is what we're calling an unyielding gospel. And this gospel has an unwavering goal, a goal that we will see is missional in focus. And so look at that with me, the missional focus of the gospel. Paul's unwavering goal, as we have seen, is for the gospel of God to produce life transformation. Now, if you would look at verse 5, you'll see a little phrase, and it's a phrase that is worthy of being circled or underlined. It's the little phrase, the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. And so we have to ask, what, what is involved here with the obedience of faith? I'll, I'll give you just a hint. It is diametrically opposed to what we've just seen in the non-lordship position. First, the obedience of faith says this. We believe, we believe and trust the promises of Almighty God. 
It was Martin Luther who said this, So when the soul firmly trusts God's promises, it regards him as truthful and righteous. Nothing more excellent than this can be ascribed to God. The very highest worship of God is that we ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever else should be ascribed to one who is trusted Luther goes on to utter these words. He says, on the other hand, what greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, what greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? This missional focus of the gospel tells us this. We are a people who embrace this notion of the obedience of faith and the obedience of faith suggests that we not only believe the promises of God, but we trust in the promises of God. You can put it this way. We, we bank our chips. We cash in all our chips on the promises of God. Listen to Psalm 31.6. The psalmist says, but I trust in the Lord. Would you do me a favor just so I feel better this morning? Raise your hand if you trust in the Lord. This is what we're called to do. This is the obedience of faith, to trust in the Lord. Psalm 31, 14 and 15, the psalmist says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and go to the very end of the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 16. And begin reading with me in verse 25. And I think you'll find something very, very interesting. Paul the Apostle begins in Romans chapter 1, emphasizing the obedience of faith. Now look at verse 25. This is his doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to not just some of the nations, thank you, Leona, to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. Are you ready to get excited? To Bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. When we refer to the obedience of faith, and you can tell this is a theme in the mind of Paul the Apostle. We say we believe and trust in the promises of God. But there's one more thing we do. It's, it's built into the idea of believing and trusting the promises of God. Therefore, we obey God. If I believe the promises of God, if I trust the promises of God, by definition, I will what? With God. I will obey God. And so we obey God. That, that is, our lives are a reflection of our confidence in God's plans and His promises. I want to say something that is going to sound counterintuitive, not to you, but to the world. And that is this. We delight in God's authority. We delight in God's authority. We delight in God's sovereignty. We delight in God's commands. Such is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ who is being 
transformed by the almighty gospel. Let me illustrate with the example of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, born 354. Now, after Augustine's conversion, and you may remember that before Augustine was converted, he was living with a woman who was not his wife. He was, he was committing fornication and enjoying it every second of the day. He was a sinful, sinful young man. His mother, a godly woman by the name of Monica, prayed day after day after day for Augustine. And you remember the story, one day he was in the, in the garden and he heard a child say, Tola lege, tola lege, which is Latin for take up and read. And he opened his Bible, and this is not, as I've mentioned in previous messages, the prescribed way to do Bible study. But it is, in this case, how God got a hold of Augustine. He opened up to Romans chapter 13 after he heard this child say, take up and read. And he read this verse in Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. He was familiar with that. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. He was familiar with that. Not in quarreling and jealousy. He was familiar with that. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine read those verses and the Holy Spirit quickened his heart. He was, he was radically regenerated and he believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at him now through the backwards, through the lens of church history, and we see he is by far one of the greatest Christian theologians in the history of the church. Don't let anyone ever tell you any different. And it's all because of this amazing work of grace that was wrought in his life. And so after his conversion, he spoke of those previous years where utter rebellion gripped his heart. Listen to what he says. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of all those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He says, you drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. John Piper picks up on this statement by St. Augustine, and he says this, This is Augustine's understanding of grace. I want to stop right there, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Exactly what is grace? Some of you are thinking, I, I, I'm almost imagining in my, my, my mind's eye, you're thinking it's unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what Wayne Grudem says, right? Wayne Grudem's right. It is unmerited favor. But I want to take it a step further and say, if you dig deep into the soil of biblical reality, what is it that grace accomplishes? That's what Piper does here. He says, this is Augustine's understanding of grace. This is going to blow you away. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. In other words, Piper says, God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than anything else. Loving God in Augustine's mind is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower, end quote. Now, here's the reason that quote is so very important. 
Because many of us in the Christian life have become accustomed to fighting sin in the wrong way. It's what I like to call the white-knuckle approach to fighting sin. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The thought comes into your mind. Some of you may have had a thought this morning that you know shouldn't be there. And so you white-knuckle it. It's like you, you grab the steering wheel of the Christian life and you're just like, oh, no, no, no. You white-knuckle it. And that's not the way that we're going to defeat sin. Piper goes on. He says, loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that he is for us that his commandments cease to be burdensome. Did you hear that? This is what grace does. Loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that he is for us that his commandments cease to be burdensome. That's why we can say we delight in the authority of God. We delight in the sovereignty of God. We delight in the commandments of God. And so I would ask you this morning, how is the gospel transforming your life? Is your life characterized more by the obedience of faith that believes the promises of God and trusts the promises of God and obeys God? Or are you being influenced by the world? I'm going to do another raise your hand thing, right? This is like my thing lately, right? I want you to raise your hand if you think the world is influencing people in an evil way. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Put your hand down if the world is not influencing you in an evil way. How come I saw this? <laughs> okay. So we recognize the world is, is influencing even believers in, in an adverse way, in an evil way. I love the Phillips par- paraphrase of Romans twelve two that says, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remake you. So that your whole attitude of mind is changed. See, this is what Paul refers to here as the obedience of faith. His aim is not merely for a person to escape hell. Rather, his aim is life transformation. A life that believes and trusts the promises of God. A life that obeys God. But interestingly enough, Paul's not finished. I want you to move with me from Paul's aim to Paul's audience. And Paul's audience, you probably have already determined what that is. His audience is the nations. It's all the nations. And so in order for us to get a handle of what Paul is referring to when he speaks of the nations, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Go back to Genesis chapter 12 just for a moment. And I think you'll find this fascinating. I have a a good friend who almost every time we talk, he talks about how God has allowed him to put the puzzle pieces together to help him figure out scripture, to help him figure out the Christian life, to help him learn theology. And as we look at Genesis chapter 12, that's exactly what this is designed to accomplish Look at three promises given to Abraham. Now, I understand that Abram's name has not yet been changed to Abraham. But let's, let's go with Abraham. That's where he's headed in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you have a highlighter, if you have a pencil or a pen, that, that is a section of scripture that should be highlighted in all of our Bibles. This is a, a massively important section of scripture. Now, briefly, here's the three promises. Number one, we see in verse two, the promise of offspring. Notice what God says. I will make you a great nation. One theologian says, quote, this kingdom would be devoted to God and would govern for his glory and praise. And this is the promise of the offspring. Number two, the promise in verse one of the land. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Number three, there is the promise of blessing in verse three. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And so through Abraham, through this one individual, through this former pagan, through this former idol worshiper, Abraham, it's through him that the whole world, or more specifically, all of God's elect would be reclaimed for God. You remember the promise that we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15. Theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium or the first gospel where the Lord Jesus Christ is prophesied that he would come, that his heel would be bruised on the cross, but Satan's head would be crushed because of Jesus' completed work on the cross. The promise of Genesis 3.15 now would reach the entire world through a child of Abraham. And the New Testament teaches that this promise finds its realization in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, fast forward back to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul tells us that he has been called and set apart, along with the other apostles, to announce the gospel of God. And that this gospel of God would bring about the obedience of faith among not just the nations, but among all the nations. Listen in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. May I suggest that in our evangelism that recently or even in the last 10 or 20 years that we've gotten a little bit passive and sloppy in our evangelism and the reason i say that is because we are afraid to tell people to repent it's not just that the world reacts to the notion of repentance but what i've found is that people in the church react to that word repentance but that's exactly what needs to happen he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is Jesus Christ, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice also at the massive scope 
of the gospel of God. We'll build on these three promises to Abraham and look at the massive scope of the gospel of God. There's a little Greek phrase that occurs in verse 1. I won't bore you with the Greek, but it is translated in English as all the nations. All the nations. Now, we're going to dig deeply into what that means just for a minute because the typical American mindset thinks this when I say all the nations, and, and most of you are doing it right now. When you think all the nations, you're thinking, usually the, the nation that you have a heart for, some of you have a heart for China. Some of you have a heart for Argentina. I have a heart for the Republic of Belarus or the, the Ukraine or the, the Russian Federation. Some of you have a heart, as I do, for England and Ireland and Scotland. Some of you have a heart for Canada or Mexico, but that is not what is being referred to when Paul speaks of all the nations. The Greek word ethnos, and if you have the Christian standard Bible, you'll see it's translated as Gentiles. These are not physical nations or countries. Rather, what Paul refers to is people groups. It's people groups, not individual countries or nations. And so this is why I refer to the massive scope of the gospel of God. This would be very familiar to you. This is why Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of, help me. Uh, I heard all, that's important, of all nations of all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And so God promises here that there will be representatives from every ethnos. That is to say, there will be representatives from every people group, every tribe and nation. And we see that in the book of Revelation. We see the, the fruit of the gospel of God. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people and nation. You see, no one will be excluded. There will be representatives from every people group. Later in Revelation, we read, And this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I remember standing at a cemetery in the Republic of Belarus with one of my friends, great big burly guy, a fan of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We're just, we're, we're brothers right from the start. And he knows like, one word of English. I think it's awesome, right? That's it. And me, I know just a couple words of Russian, right? And so we're, we're good friends, but we can't speak with one another in, in proper languages. But as the translator looked at me, he said, your brother wants to tell you something as we stood in the cemetery. He said, when we get to heaven, we will praise the Lord and I will speak Russian. Russian, right? Well, we know this. There will be representatives from every tribe 
and nation, which is our great hope as we send missionaries out from Christ Fellowship to make a difference in this world. I can tell you that growing up in the church and going to Bible college and going to seminary, I, I developed this this uncanny ability along the way to recognize the plug for evangelism and world missions. I always knew it was coming, and some of you are anticipating that plug is coming right now because we're speaking of the nations. But we have more than a duty, and that's where I fell short when I heard the plug was coming. I was like, oh boy, here we go. The guilt trip's coming. If you don't go overseas, you're a bad Christian. Have you ever heard that one? But there's more than a mere duty to proclaim the gospel. We have the privilege, do we not, of partnering with God as being his ambassadors and members of his family who are God's means of bringing about the obedience of faith. Think about it this way. If God wanted to, could he just have this great method of evangelism where something dropped out of the sky and people got saved? He could do that. But he didn't do it. He chose to use people like us to be ambassadors, to be be representatives of the living God, to share about the gospel of God. God chooses you and me to be his instruments to help fulfill the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It will be many months before we get there, but in Romans 10, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He goes on to say, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As I was preparing this message, my good friend Don popped into my mind. He's with the Lord now. And Don used to love people, love to tell people about the gospel. He always had tracts with him. He always had Christian literature with him. When he would go to the doctor's office, he would take a dozen donuts. When he went to the, the dentist's office, he took a dozen donuts. When he got his oil changed, he took a dozen donuts. He was a rather wealthy man. But he took these gifts to people in the community. Now, that's quite a man, taking donuts to a doctor, right? But he did this to show kindness to these people who were caring for him. But here's the bottom line. He was telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel of God. So we've seen Paul's aim. We've seen his audience. Finally and briefly, notice Paul's aspiration. His aspiration and his aspiration in verse five is simply this. It's the glory of God. Read it one more time with me. It says through whom that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's that phrase I want to wrestle with just for a moment for the sake of his name. And the way I want to do that is by asking a few questions. The first is this, is why does God create anything? Why does he create anything? And the answer is found in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why does God create? He does it for his glory. What's interesting is most of us have memorized Psalm chapter 23 
And we see in Psalm, Psalm chapter 23 that he leads me in paths of righteousness. Notice what it says. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. One more question. Why did the Lord save the people in the Old Testament? And why does he save us now? And the answer is for his name's sake. Psalm 106 verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. And so Paul's aspiration and God's aspiration are one and the same. Habakkuk 2.14, we looked at this several months ago. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, the best book on missions, in my humble opinion, that's ever been written. John Piper says this, at the bottom of all our hope, when everything else is given way, we stand on this great reality that everlasting, all-sufficient God is infinitely, unwaveringly, and eternally committed to the glory of his great and holy name. I want to close by showing the truth point once again and putting it on the screen for you. We learn that Paul's unwavering goal is for the gospel of God to produce life transformation among all the nations for God's glory. This is the goal that fueled, that fueled every decision that Paul ever made as a follower of Jesus Christ. Every missionary journey he went on, every conversation he had, every business endeavor, everything in Paul's life was fueled by this truth point. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards sums up the essence of this unwavering goal. And I want you to hear this very carefully. He says this, The end of creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now, what is glorifying God but rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? He goes on to say that the happiness of the creature, and stop there for a minute, the happiness of the creature, dot, dot, dot. I've had you raise your hands way too many times today, but think this in your mind. How many of you desire to be happy? You desire to be happy. I don't know how many Christians I've talked to that say, oh, God doesn't want us to be happy. Nothing could be further from the truth. God wants his people to be happy. And so how does it come about? Edwards answers that question. The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. Now, I heard John Piper say once that he's never had an original thought. And if he did, he'd suspect himself. That gave me hope. He says this, building on Edwards' work, he says, The exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are the same thing. Did you hear that? The exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing. And so when you learn that the glory of God and experiencing joy are not at odds, that they're not at odds, it, it literally changes everything. 
When you realize that the glory of God and experiencing joy are not at odds, it changes your approach to marriage. It changes your approach to money. It revolutionizes the way you spend your time. It revolutionizes your entire worldview. And here's what struck me as I was studying verse 5, that Paul's goal is also our goal at Christ Fellowship as we strive to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why every decision that we make is filtered through the mission statement of making more disciples of Jesus Christ. If you were to come to Ken Olson, if you were to come to Steve Nims or Chris Veldman or any one of the elders or myself and say, I've got this amazing idea for a ministry. Here's what the elder is going to say to you. Does it help support the mission? Well, no, it doesn't. It, it Actually, it's this it's this class, it's a, it's a physical fitness class, and, and we just want to sit around and just fellowship, right? Does that help to establish the mission of Christ Fellowship? If it does, it will be welcomed and received with joy and exuberance. If it doesn't, maybe a good idea, but it doesn't fit under the mission of Christ Fellowship and needs to go by the wayside. I want to ask this morning, are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you, have you turned from your sin and turned to the cross of Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? And can you say with Paul that your unwavering goal is for the gospel of God to produce life transformation among all the nations for God's glory. We're going to pick up on that theme next week and Lord willing finish verses six and seven. And then we're like a, like a bullet being shot out of a gun. We're off to the races as we begin together. Verse eight in Romans chapter one, let's pray together. Father, thank you for helping us to understand once again, the, the power and the goal of the gospel. We thank you for the realization that Paul's goal is identical to our goal here at Christ Fellowship. Our desire is to make disciples, fruitful disciples, who love God, who believe the promises of God, who trust the promises of God, disciples who obey God. Lord, I pray that you do a a great work of grace in someone's heart today, perhaps someone who is not yet a disciple, that they would hear the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to live a life that we could never live, and he died a death that we all deserve to die, and that they would turn from their sins, that they would repent, and that they would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, so that their sins would be forgiven, past, present, and future. For the rest of us, Lord, as followers of Christ... Some of us have been following Christ for 40, 50, 60 plus years. Would you help us to understand the truth of this passage? Would you help us to see the unwavering goal of the gospel and to delight in the fact that we can participate in the pursuit of your glory for all the nations? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.